What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Weiss Sports Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dan Robson. Dan is a senior writer and the head of features at The Athletic Canada. In this episode, I chat with Dan about the NHL's decision to pause to, in order to advance the conversation regarding systemic racism, how this will impact the sport going forward, as well as his sports media career, his approach to writing long-form features, as well as his advice for young journalists and writers breaking into the industry. The We Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to today's episode with Dan Robson on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, on today's episode of the We Sports Chronicles, I am joined by Dan Robson. He is a senior writer, head of features at The Athletic Canada. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you to, to have you on the show today. And you're actually my first national newspaper award winner to be on the <laughs> podcast. So so it, it's a real honor to have you on today, man. Well, it's, it's an honor to uh, to be that for you. I'm so happy to be here. It's uh, it's exciting to chat with you. Great, and, and and we'll get into a lot of different parts of your career and some of the the pieces that you wrote. I know you were in Edmonton recently in the bubble, but. I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on the last couple of days in sports right now. And just with the, with the Wildcats strike in the NBA and a lot of games being canceled due to you know, the, the wake of the Jacob Blake shooting in Wisconsin. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on, on this moment in history for sports, you know, in sports journalism itself in trying to navigate through these difficult times. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating time for sure. We're, we're seeing so much unfold. Um, I mean, just, it feels like in the last few months, obviously, um, through COVID and then in, in the reality of uh, social injustice and anti-Black racism, um, you know, in, and in anti-Indigenous racism in, in Canada and the United States. So um, this, this last week in particular uh, has been, you know, just I think a remarkable moment in sport. We don't. We look back that the history of sports is filled with with moments that that were sort of touchstones in what was going on in society at the time. They were. It was actually big discussions about like the injustice in, in our society. The same. And for for years, it seems we we want to sort of separate those things and want to live in this environment where um, there's some sort of dis, disengagement between the two. But there never really has been. And I think what we've seen from these NBA players um, in, in with the Milwaukee. Bucks first, and then and then the rest agreeing to this uh, this walkout, this wildcat strike, as you mentioned. Um, it's it's created a moment in history, and and mm -hmm. it's something that will be talked about for a long time. And, and to see see people using that kind of a platform, um, taking a stand uh, for something that is so dear to their heart and so important, it's it's inspiring to see. Um, and I'm really intrigued to see where this goes next and see what kind of impact the statement of saying, you know, this is bigger than basketball and we're going to use our influence to, to push for change. We're going to step aside from the, the court. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. And like words are one thing and words are very important. And, and, and these, you know, demonstrations are very impactful, but action following it obviously needs to happen. And it's certainly something that doesn't 
happen overnight. But like you said, I think there, there have been moments in sport when you look at Muhammad Ali or Dr. Carlos, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee that, that have all had such resigned impact. And I think it just goes to show that this, you know, trying to separate sports and social issues, you can't do that. And like, I think it's, it's a small faction of the population that just wants to stick to sports. At the end of the day, you just can't do that because mm-hmm. these are human beings and like, they're not just right. people that just play sports. They have, they have, mm-hmm. they have lives, they have experiences. And I think we as a media need to amplify, continue to amplify those messages and, and their experiences. I think that's a really important point that you just made, uh, that they're, they're human beings. And I think that's something that we, uh, as sports fans, and, and often sometimes as sports media, forget. And, and the idea that there's a choice of separating uh, what's happening in society from sport is just, it's, it actually isn't true. It's, it's impossible mm-hmm. to do that. The reality is these are sports that are played by said human beings, human beings with vastly different experiences um, that come from different places and, and from, come from places that are that are touched by what's going on in the world right now and have been historically, as you mentioned. And so I think um, it's just a fallacy to think that there is any division and, and to make it this argument of, oh, well, um, you know, athlete, or media is just being political by amplifying these things or athletes are just being political. It's, it's just nonsense, really. And I, I've, um, you know, I've, I've talked about this for many years. I, I, it's one of those things where I just think it's um, one of the silliest arguments there is because really we can't, we can't separate the two. And I, you know, and, and this has been a painful time for a lot of athletes. And I think we need to recognize that. And, and we're seeing their pain um, in these interviews. We're seeing their pain as they, you know, take their dreams that they've worked so hard to accomplish and, and put them aside. I mean, these are teams that are in pursuit of an NBA championship to see them um, willingly. I mean, as of last night, have this vote with the Lakers and the Clippers walking out saying, we're going to cancel the season to have um, the Milwaukee Bucks say, you know, we're not going to play this game. We're going to, in, in, in the practice of what they did, they could have forfeited the game, you know, and in the pursuit of, of a championship. And these have real implications. So people say, well, they've got nothing to lose. I mean, that's, that's also nonsense. So <laughs> I think that this whole, um, this whole experience is, this whole, what's happening right now is, is opening up um, the reality of that, that are, that discussion. And we're seeing it, you know, it's going to be, it's a very polarizing time in, in our world right now. And we're going to keep seeing that argument that, you know, stick to sports and all that kind of stuff. But it is, it is utter nonsense. And, and I'm glad that um, we're seeing, you know, the, how, um, how, how incredibly linked sports society are. Yeah. And, and, and look no further than, Fred Van Vliet's media availability this week, Norman Powell's, Pascal Siak. I mean, you can just see the, the pain and suffering with these questions constantly being asked and, and them having to answer these questions because they've lived through these, these experiences. And, and that's what makes this so much more challenging. But, Dan, you, you look at yesterday and the NBA taking the lead, some baseball games being canceled tennis even has had a moment of pause today and and then you look at hockey and it kept going and I know that some of your colleagues at, at the athletic you know wrote really impactful columns about this about their response to this you've had the chance to talk to Akeem Alou who's very involved with the Hockey Diversity Alliance do you think that their delayed response to this issue hurts this sport and how do they ensure that the words that they're saying, as Nazem Kadri said yesterday, don't become stale so that meaningful change can happen? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to hockey, it it's a really interesting um, problem because I think it, it speaks to the dynamic of what hockey is. And we're seeing um, NBA players, MLB players, MLS players, um, and WNBA players coming from uh, different backgrounds and experiences that are more directly affected by the injustice that is unfolding in the States and that, we're, that, is, that is continuing to happen, the violence against um, Black people than the majority of, of hockey players. And, and that's a reality of the, the demographics of the sport. And I, and I think that it actually speaks, it's a, it's a very um, interesting microcosm to what's happening at large in society in this discussion. Um, we're seeing people who have never experienced these things say, well, you know, we'll just kind of go along status quo and, and you know, everything will be fine. I mean, not, not everybody, but that often is the other side of that conversation. And, and hockey, unfortunately, um, I don't think deliberately, I don't think with malicious intent or with um, racist intent or anything like that. I just think there's a blindness to that experience that um, hockey is uncomfortable with sort of embracing it and has been. It's been kind of clumsy throughout this entire time since the beginning of um, this sort of resurgence of the Black Lives Matter discussion after George Floyd's um, death. Um, hockey was never really quite sure how to, how to handle this. Um, and then now it's kind of coming out again. So in speaking with uh, Akeem and, and, you know, his colleagues at the, with the uh, Hockey Diversity Alliance, I mean, today they were calling for the NHL to cancel games. And um, I, I don't know the outcome. I was just looking on Twitter right now. I know there's reports that they're actually might be canceling games today. So it's really interesting uh, to see how that will unfold. I think hockey lags behind, not by intent, but by experience. It lags behind because it doesn't know how to react. And it never really has. And so I do think we just need to... Um, I think it's important to be critical of, of these things, but also to understand um, where the blind spots are. And I think hockey needs to as well. I don't know what it will mean in terms of hockey's popularity and, and how it rolls forward in terms of, you know, the, the sport that wasn't taking a stand. I mean, in some ways it might benefit um, the NHL just to continue to be quiet and, and move forward. I wrote about this several years ago when I, I wrote a call about Sidney Crosby and the Penguins going to um, visit Donald Trump after he had told the like, we'll say Warriors that they weren't welcome coming. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I said that inevitably um, that decision to go was political, whether they wanted to stay apolitical or not. They, mm -hmm. Donald Trump made it political by taking a different team and rejecting it. So inevitably, and I, and I do believe that hockey is particularly uncomfortable with this, as we said before, Social issues, political issues, and sport are intertwined. Um, and and non-action is the same as action. It just states sort of what, where you as a league stand, um, you know, whether or not you want to be making that statement. No, for sure. And like even, even last year when, when Akeem Alou tweeted about his experiences with racism in hockey, like it just again goes to show how, how long that, that type of behavior has just been swept under the rug at, at all levels. And I just think that, that these conversations are just continuing to happen just because again, it just, as you said, they just weren't prepared for something like this to happen on their watch. And, and it was interesting, you know, Akeem Malou's comments came um, basically December, I mean, just before yeah. the turn of, uh, the, of the new year. And you just think about everything that's happened since. I mean, at yeah. the time he wasn't, um, expecting to create uh, change, he, he, we talked about this when I did this feature with him for the Athletic. Um, he didn't know what would what would come of it. He just was so frustrated and had to say something. 
and, and now to see him be one of the co-heads of the, um, the Hockey Diversity Alliance, just to see this just months about what's coming and talking to him since then, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it was really interesting in hindsight to see that that was actually, um, especially in hockey, the beginning of a conversation that had needed, that needed to happen so badly. As I said earlier, Dan, you had the chance to go to Edmonton in the bubble covering the, the Stanley Cup playoffs. Out of all your sporting assignments, how weird was that experience? Yeah, it was definitely bizarre. Um, you know, it felt somewhat apocalyptic just to, I mean, not to, not to overstate this, obviously, hyperbole, but it felt very weird to be watching this, these games unfold. And then I'd be in the hotel room and I'd see some of them on, on the um on my on television it's just the the contrast between mm. having watched it on in in the arena itself um which, which felt kind of hollow um it felt it felt empty and it felt like like you know obviously something very important was missing being fans and you were also able to hear the game a lot more you were able to see the intensity a little more and hear the language of it so it it provided some some benefit for sure um but it was just uh yeah, it was an almost an eerie experience. I mean, even there was less media there. It felt kind of like this weird hockey dream in a way. Like it was just kind of bizarre. And then Edmonton itself, obviously, is still going through um, the realities of COVID, but it was somewhat shut down as well. So um, it was definitely something I won't forget in terms of being there. Um, it was really eye-opening to see how the bubble worked itself and, and to speak with um, different people that are involved in the process. Um, I mean, I think that as a as an experiment it was it has been quite successful mm-hmm. so far but for the nhl and and they i think the people all the people have worked very hard um to make it work deserve to be commended for that that work like it's um a lot of a lot of work a lot of hours a lot of tireless days um have gone into this so i think they deserve that that's uh, applause but um yeah it was definitely something i won't forget no, I mean, like, even as a viewer from home, for me, it just feels like a scrimmage. I mean, I've been to junior hockey games where there isn't a lot of people there, but at least, like, there's people, like, cheering and, like, it's sort of normal. But even there, it, it's these billboards covering the seats, and, like, like, it looks aesthetically pleasing, but at the end of the day, like, it just feels like a scrimmage to me. And, and, I, and I know from a lot of my friends watching that are fans, it just feels hard for them to sort of feel – like into it because there's that missing element of oh mm-hmm. the fans which are normally normally so raucous during playoff time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Tuukka Rask uh, with the Boston Bruins essentially mm-hmm. said. He he just couldn't get into the game, and I don't know all the details behind his departure from the Bruins, but I know I mean his comments before he announced it were were quite clear, and I and I think that's definitely fair. I mean, I I would say that there are there is definitely intensity on the ice. I mean, I, I watched the intensity on the ice I watched I was there when Mark Scheifele went into the boards off the um at the Kachuk hit and and that was a a very curse uh filled uh couple minutes um in which Paul Maurice sort of you know went uh went off the wall cursing about what had occurred and and I mean it was it was that felt intimate almost it felt like the most important beer league game you could possibly have I guess that's the best way to describe it it did have that muted sense of energy but I think the players on the ice, for the most part, still felt that kind of intensity. So, and I do think that that will continue to increase. I mean, in the beginning, the first round that I was there for the qualifying round, I think everyone was kind of still trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, this is the best that can be done with no good solution. So I think that that's sort of what the NHL and these players are working with. 
Um, I, I personally don't believe it's the kind of thing where there's an asterisk on the end of whoever wins this. I mean, I think sport is sport and, and they've come back to compete and, um, and I'll be watching if they're able to get to a Stanley Cup. And that's still a question mark, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, the league will say it itself, but that's, that's no sure thing. So um, it's, it's real, real interesting to watch it. I do think, uh, and I, as, a, as a fan of both basketball and hockey, that I think the NBA product translates a little differently than the NHL product does in this regard. I, I know fans are an integral part of both, especially in the NBA. I mean, they're actually right on the sidelines and it mm. matters. But, I mean, you also, you know, basketball has this thing of just a battle in the gym. And I, I've, I've found that um, watching these basketball games when they were playing, that intensity is still there because the energy, that because the players aren't masked, because there's one-on-one, um, you know, discussion and, and one-on-one battles in a, in a more intimate way. I think that that it as a sport is more suited to this environment um, than perhaps hockey is. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Like, I think for me, like there have been some games where I've watched where it doesn't like for basketball, where I forget that there's no fans because it's so intense on the floor. It's going back and forth. Mm-hmm. There have been good NHL games. Like there have been games that have gone overtime that have been in five overtimes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah but like, it's still like I still re- remember that there's no fans there just because it, the camera angle always shows the, those billboards covering the seats. So yeah. it's a really interesting comparison hockey to basketball. But Dan, when you when you were at Edmonton, you you mentioned how you wrote a couple stories on you know one was the people who brought the sounds of the bubble to to people, and then of course the testing that's done in the bubble. When you were doing those stories and reporting, how was that process different? Doing that compared to, let's say, a normal time where there isn't a pandemic happening? I mean, the obvious one is that it's all done by phone and all done by reporting <laughs> remotely, which is, I mean, I've done that before. So it wasn't, that's not abnormal for me. But, mm. um, you know, just, I think, I, I mean, my focus in the last little while is, is really been about in process and in, in um, what's happening on these. A lot of the stories that I write are based on just questions that I have personally, just on you know, curiosities. And I think um, going into this, I, I was just very intrigued by the experiment of it all and what they were going to be doing. And then these things like bringing in, um, you know, artificial sound, you know, and, and I think there's, it was really interesting for me to learn and particularly with that story about the amount of um, work and effort and, and art that goes into something like that, where I think we would just dismiss it um, as sort of like, oh, they just pushed a button in their sound. But in reality, I mean, these guys, as I've heard the story, are kind of playing a bit of a keyboard and they memorize um, the chords, like are the, the buttons that they're going to be pushing and the sound levels. And it's, it's a real, I mean, they take it very seriously. So I found that very um, intriguing and interesting. So I guess in terms of in general, I mean, I, I think this is definitely a different kind of reporting that I do. I, most of my stories in general are very, um, sort of human focused um, features. And, and I, I still am planning to do those and, and doing them. But I mean, just in this period of time, um, I, I found it to be just a quite um, interesting process to try and learn about how something like this, which is so unprecedented, uh, comes together and, and the trials and, and, tribu- and, and errors that come along the way as they try and, uh, and, and make something uh, that we want to watch at home. And, and try and salvage the season and, and save a lot of money. Shifting gears a bit and, and talking about your career as a whole, you've had a lot of unique stops along the way. Was being in sports media always in the cards for you, Dan? 
That's a good question. Um, it wasn't. No, I, I, I went to, after my university career, I played university hockey and I played mm. junior hockey. So I had, a, I had a background in hockey and in sport in general. So my entire life uh, until I was in my early 20s was, was basically essentially sports. But I, became, I was always intrigued with writing in general. And, and I got into that after I stopped playing. I started working with a student newspaper basically, which is, I think, a lot of uh, journalists start um, as a sports editor because of my sports background. But then I went to Carleton and studied uh, journalism for a couple of years. And I, I would say when I got out of school, my focus was in telling stories, um, regardless of what platform I'd be telling those stories. And I, I, that is how I approach my career even today. I got, had had the opportunity to work at the Toronto Star originally doing breaking news and, and that kind of stuff. I got, but, but an early opportunity came along for me to start writing features for Sportsnet Magazine when it, when it launched in 2011. And that's really what uh, gave me the platform and opportunity to explore long form writing as a, as a profession and, and in particular sport. So my, my experience, uh, my knowledge sort of geared me towards uh, sports because it was the most natural place in within the industry. But you know, I'd like to think of myself not as, you know, sort of a sports writer, but more as a writer who writes about sports. And, I, and that might sound sort of pretentious or, you know, over, you know, just like silly. But the reality is I'd like to, you know, I, I've always been fascinated in, in issues beyond the arena and, and outside of it. And I, and I think even the, the, the kind of stories I cover, for the most part, they actually do exist beyond the arena itself. So if I, could go, I can go back and look at most of my stories, um, actually, they, they don't really deal with sort of X's and O's and operations and, and trades and, and that kind of stuff. Some of them will, but for the most part, um, it's about the stories of, of people that live within the arena, but obviously live, you know, their lives are, are lived beyond it. And, and I think there's lessons to be learned in all those stories. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting how you mentioned how you worked, you know, at the Toronto Star in breaking news, because I find that a lot of journalists that dream of getting into sports, they might have to break in by working in news or doing those mm-hmm. beats that aren't sports. So I'm curious for you, how working in breaking news helped you be a better journalist and prepare you for your sports journalism experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually I also worked at the Canadian press yeah. um, on Ontario desk for, for a brief time. It was a long time ago now, but I mean, well, it was like about a decade ago now, but I, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it actually, it, it was sort of like a, um, it was the best sort of school you could learn within because you're, what you're doing essentially is, figuring that out how to bring together complicated stories in, in, in a quick amount of time, but also stories you're not comfortable with. Like I'd be, I'd be working in the courts. I'd be working, um, you know, doing something about working in, in healthcare hospitals or doing, um, you know, a, a murder case. Like there's all kinds of so many different stories that, especially when your general assignment that get thrown at you, that you have to sort of just start sprinting from the start, talk to the right experts, um, find the story, write it cleanly, write it clearly, and, and present that to people who have the same amount of information or knowledge that you started with. So the, the idea of, of going out and finding, creating, and then um, and producing is, is fundamental to, I think, what all storytellers do, what all journalists do, whether you're in sport or business or um, a correspondent overseas. So I think it, it, it gave me a foundational set of tools and understanding of how to approach what I do. And so I, I don't think that that's actually changed fundamentally. I don't know a lot of stuff. I mean, the reality is I, I come from um, to every story uh, writing about things that I know nothing about. So if I'm 
you know, going up to, um, I had the privilege of going up to the, to Rankin Inlet last year to spend time with, with Jordan Tutu as he's returning home uh, to play in this tournament about, um, that was dedicated to his brother who, who had died by suicide years ago. It was, it was a really important part of his life. But I had no experience within the communities. I don't know what it's like yeah. to live in the North, but to be able to then go up and to meet such incredible people and to sort of learn about um, their world and to try to present uh, a story as, as accurately as I can, as someone who can't really uh, ever fully understand. Um, it's, it's sort of the, that's to me is the heart and, and the core of what I do. And I learned that um, writing about stories, uh, you know, in, in at the Toronto Star, and even back when I was in um, at Carleton, learning about this stuff. But the, the foundation of of your approach never actually changes. I don't think it should change, and it should be as simple as possible. And that's to um, find great stories and to tell them as well as possible and as accurately as possible, um, and to to make sure that you're presenting them in a way that engages the people that are uh, are consuming them. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I had Mark Craig on the show, who's a senior MLB writer at The Athletic, and he talked about how journalists are professional learners. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think the more that you're willing to show that your curiosity and, you're, and sometimes you, you're not an expert in every single topic, that you're willing to ask right. those questions to dig deeper on certain things, I just think makes you more authentic is because I think for some younger journalists, they feel this pressure to like, I got to know everything about X, Y, Z. And then it may backfire because then you just yeah. don't know. Right. So showing that you may not know about something, but be willing to ask those questions and show your curiosity, I think will lead you in different directions on a particular story that you may not know when you first start writing it. You know, and I, I do feel, it's a really interesting thing, I, I do think it's unfortunate the amount of pressure um, you know, younger journalists feel getting in that they have to create you know, a social media presence and they've got to be an expert and they've got opinions and all these things. And I, I do think that's actually quite problematic, to be honest. I, I think that as we go get into this profession, um, we're sort of starting, it's like we want you to start from the position of a columnist who's been working for 20 years and has all this background experience. And there's a lot of great voices out there and we need to have those. But I do think that you know and, and this might be one of my downfalls to be honest but like i i don't i don't like sharing opinions that i haven't thought a long time about or that i feel that i've done the reporting on or research on to have an opinion about mm -hmm. so i i don't you know I, I feel the need to feel that that there's this pressure to fill this void of space um and it could be twitter or instagram or you know whatever it is um i think that that's an that's a new pressure that uh journalists are dealing with and, and sometimes it works out incredibly well and, and there's very insightful things and sometimes I, I think it, it, it can become very problematic. So um, I personally, in my approach, always try to um, take more time, if possible, to tell a story. And I'd much rather, if I have a thought, spend time exploring that thought and then write a story about that in a, in a, in a more complete way than to just sort of just tweet it out. And, and I think that, you know, not to, Despires Twitter or anything like that, but I do think that we do you do see increasingly that being sort of the um, primary mode of communication and approach to these things, and I and I'm I think that that's um, it marks a moment I think in in journalism, and it's uh, it's a really uh, it's a quite an interesting one. So you have this toolbox that you they developed at the Toronto Star Canadian Press. You then go to Sportsnet, where you worked for the Sportsnet magazine, which 
doesn't exist anymore. It's, you know, now fully sportsnet.ca. I'm just curious what that experience was like for you, because of course you must've been there when this change was happening. And then, and then you go to a fully digital operation mm-hmm. at the athletic where you are right now. It's the other um, great fortune of my timing in my career that I had the opportunity to work for uh, full. I mean, we were a magazine that, that didn't, wasn't online at all. We were just a print mm-hmm. magazine. Everyone thought it was crazy at the time. And I, and I understand that in the 2000, it wasn't that long ago that that, that yeah. launched. It was, it was less than a decade ago and it existed for, I believe it was five full years, just prints. And then we started putting stuff online, but you know, it, it, it was, um, it was such a privilege. I mean, to, to be able to spend weeks on a story to then have the kind of editing that we had at the magazine, which was top notch editing, just first class uh, professionals who have been in the, industry for years and to be able to think about stories more, think about structure, think about characters, think about what more we can do to make the story better. It, it was, it was a, it was a slow pace in a, in a frenetic time. And it, and it gave me, I think, an ability to um, try and drown out that noise and just write the best story possible to report the best story possible uh, and, and tell it the, 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 the best way we can. And so those were just, to be honest, those were years of training for me that, um, I, you know, I, were so invaluable and I, and I owe every opportunity I have now to having had that opportunity. Um, as, the, as the magazine transitioned online, the reality was we still had a focus on big reads, which they kind of transitioned into and the sports still does some incredible uh, big reads and some of my colleagues are there doing fantastic work and work colleagues that I worked with for years and I really admire what they do. And I actually am quite, um, and I, I respect Sportsnet because they have continued a, um, a, persist, a persistent um, focus on telling stories that exist beyond the short stories and sort of the nuts and bolts of sports, and they continue to do that. So I'm, I'm really proud that the people that we worked with at that time that I started with are still, um, not all of them are still there, but some of them are still there, and then new people have come along that are incredibly talented, um, like David Singh is working at, yeah. at Sportsnet right now, and he's a, he's a great guy doing some fantastic work, and I, I think it's nice to see an outlet that continues to um, believe in that importance. And when I moved over to the athletic, it was sort of for the same reason, right? But it was like when I started at, at sports night, it was this new thing. It was exciting. They were doing something different. It's exactly what the athletics doing yeah. um, right now. It came a little bit later and the commitment to that kind of storytelling reminds me of the same thing that we um, first started out with that ambitious kind of storytelling that happened at um, Sportsnet. So for me, it was basically another opportunity to go over and, and have this sort of second incredible opportunity in, in, my, in my career um, to, to explore those, those possibilities. And it's been fantastic there as well. We have great support. So I, I think I've been very lucky just to have uh, had be employed by places that give me a chance to grow um, as a journalist and then encourage me in that growth and give me time um, to, to write the kind of stories that, that I think matter. You mentioned commitment to storytelling, and I think that's so important because, unfortunately, we're just sort of seeing sort of the decline of long-form journalism. Like when you look at Sports Illustrated going in a complete di- different direction than what it once was, Bleacher Report recently, it, it just shows that it, it's sad because I think there are there is an audience out there for long-form journalism, taking your time on a story, really digging deep mm. and doing that really important reporting and I commend what the athletic is doing and still even Sportsnet's doing it and really trying to to do that. But it's hard because at the end of the day, like I think a lot of young people, they want that quick fix. They want that 
quick video or quick little blurb and aren't willing to just sit down and read a really in-depth story. You know, it's interesting. I think though, on top of that, and I think you're right, but audiences are very demanding and, mm-hmm. and the challenge is, is greater now because they're, you know, when, back when there was just Sports Illustrated, for example, and that was obviously some of the greatest work ever produced and it's incredible and inspiring and, and, but they had, they were sort of the biggest players in the game. The reality is now everyone can publish. Every single person can say something on Twitter or write something. So the, the, the demand for your attention, the demand for your time is that much greater. So I think of it as a, a challenge. I, I know that people do write, read long form stories because I've seen them, other my colleague stories are my own. I've seen them also skip stories that I've written and go, I don't really care about this. And, and I think that that is, is the, the market sort of deciding um, you know, what matters to a period of time. But I don't think it necessarily means the end of, of long-form writing or that people today are any less inquisitive and, and interested in, in, in important stories and important ideas. I think we have much more to take our attention away from what we're looking at right now. So there's so many things going on and that's, that's a real problem. But as a writer, um, it, it just makes me sort of more focused on my job and my challenge, which is to make you pick up a story that I've, that I've written and I've reported and not want to finish reading it. And I've seen that happen. So I know that the, that the attention is still there. Um, I just think that we have to respect the audience and their time and recognize that the bar is high. So in building off of that, so you've written a lot of features from Ray Emery, which you won the National Newspaper Award for, Bobby Webster, Jordan Tutu, which you mentioned. Walk me through sort of the process from like pitching the story to the end and like how you throughout that process attempt to sort of push through the cracks to get people's attention that you, hey, you got to read this story because it's really, really good. Mm. I mean, I think it starts with my own, uh, as I said earlier, my own curiosity. So if I'm bored, I'm assuming you're bored, I guess is the main part. If, I, if I'm not interested, I'm assuming you're not interested. Um, and so I think with all those stories, when I, when I go to pitch a story, um, it, it's, it, it comes from a set or sort of a place of, of intrigue where I want to know more about it. And, that, and, and the reality is, I mean, that could be something, uh, I think for me, like as fascinating as Bobby Webster's um, career and how he got to worry to the Raptors and, and, a, and kind of an untold story where, you know, he's the guy behind Masai Ujiri, but he, he has his own incredible arc of a narrative. And I, learning about that was really interesting. Or something tragic, um, like, the, like the death of Ray Emery, which was, um, you know, a horrible moment in, in hockey and in, and in um, just for that community in general and, and for Ray's family. But learning more about a life that was widely, I think, misunderstood um, throughout his life and, and was somewhat, um, you know, was, 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 I think, dealt with in the media to a certain extent um, with uh, not the kind of depth that it, that it deserved. Um, so to be able to go back and, and, and learn about the entirety of a life, to me, is one of the most fascinating things you can do. So when I go out to do a story like that, I start with a question. I, I obviously make some phone calls and figure out what is capable, I'm not capable of finding out. And then I just kind of build out from there. And, and in both cases, I mean, just to use those two examples, it's really a character study. I mean, it's really trying to find what um, is, how did someone rise to the place they were in? In the case of, of Ray, you know, how did a tragedy befall him and, and what components, not just, not just physically, not just in terms of his life, but also in his um, 
the missteps he might have taken in, in his in his life and, and trying to sort that out and, and just trying to sort of unravel that puzzle. And I work out from there, talking to as many people as I possibly can um, and, and try to build out all the questions that I have, trying to answer them. And then looking back at it, thinking, okay, well, if I'm telling the story of this person's life, how do I, how do I begin it and how do I end it? What are the most essential components in the middle? When you write a feature and are done and, and, and it's published, do you like, you know, look back and say, you know, damn, like that was a really well done. Like I, I hit that out of the park or gee, I missed something here. Like, do you reflect all, all the time on the pieces that you've done or do you just sort of say, you know what, published, file it away onto the next story? Um, I, 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 uh, I really reread them because I'm pretty self-critical. So I, I, I have an issue of re regret I kind of going, well, I could have reworded it this way or done it this way. And that, as a writer, that would drive you crazy. So I think it's very rarely do I go, you know, that was done perfectly because it never is done perfectly. Yeah. And there are always ways I would have done something a little differently or words I would have changed. I mean, I could, I could drive myself bonkers um, doing that. So I, I do I do reflect. I mean, I do look at criticism that I might have gotten for that piece, you know, through comments or through, you know, editors. But generally, I've gone through enough drafts. And that's part of it as well, I should note. The drafts are essential. I mean, I go through several drafts of a story. And, and the first couple, I'll never show anybody ever. And I, it's sort of like the people that have read them, I, I consider them people who know my darkest secrets because I know how bad <laughs> those, um, those, those, those drafts were. And if they ever exposed them to the world, I'd be done. So I think that that is um, essential with learning the, to go through drafts and edit and not be discouraged by that. But I think part of that is that I am a perfectionist in terms of the work that I produce and that's never perfect. So um, I, I'll read something and I'll kind of go, ah, oh, I could have tweaked that. I mean, sometimes I like it, but for the most part, I, 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 I revisit, I revisit it um, to talk about it, um, but I, I try not to be too reflective aside from taking lessons I've learned from that story and then implementing them into the next uh, project I'm working on. I want to end the conversation, Dan, by, by, because not only are, are you a writer, but you also teach young journalism students. You're an instructor at Ryerson. You also were an instructor at Humber College. And I'm just curious for you, when you're looking at and reading through you know, young people's work and, you know, for the first time, what is sort of the one biggest facet of their writing that they need to improve on the most? That's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I, I think, let me think about that for a moment. I mean, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a variety of things that I think are common problems. Um, I think though the biggest one is, confidence in the story itself and and often writers get in the way of themselves um they, and i think it, it's because of a lack of confidence or experience and so there's sort of a um you know putting too many words in being too descriptive yeah um trying to you know like there's a balance in description that is essential but when you put it on too much um i was just saying recently to someone i was working with it's sort of like taking too many deeks on a breakaway it's like you lose the pocket and it goes and you miss the point you need to be swift you need to know how to have um, be deaf with the way that you're using detail. And so that's something that I think is, has to be learned and it's a hard thing to teach someone right away. I, all, I mean, that's always a complicated thing because I always say go out and record as much detail as you possibly can and then every detail ends up in the story and that's, that's not the way to use detail. Um, then there's also just the idea of narrative arc and the idea of understanding a beginning and a middle of an end. And that's a concept that we've heard from since high school and I, it's sort of a cliche and everyone goes, oh, okay, yeah, we get it. But it's actually much harder to pull off, you know, pulling off sort of the introduction and, and tying that 
the introduction to lead, the beginnings, and tying that to the end so that when you get to the end of your story, if you're writing a feature, there's, there's a, a sense of cohesiveness, a connection, a throwback, something that's going to make us feel like this was a complete narrative. And that, again, is something that is hard to teach aside from reading it, reading it a lot. I mean, you can, I can give you a roadmap to it and you can sort of figure out all the fundamentals. But in practice, it's always much harder. Mm. And, I, and so I think I always tell writers um, that I'm working with in, at Ryerson and, and elsewhere is to not be too uh, discouraged by that process. It's writing is hell sometimes. It's very, <laughs> very frustrating. You, you know, and a lot of the time, you know what you want to say. You know, like you, you're, you see the story, but you can't put the story on paper. Um, and, and I think that, that getting through that process is, is and, and working through it and being patient with yourself through that process and being self-critical, working hard, but also not getting discouraged is the most fundamental thing to writing. It's, it's being willing to know where you can get better, um, but also not being too critical of yourself that you think you can't do it. Because you can do it. It's just a matter of, of um, how you, how persistent you are at it. And, and I think that's kind of the constant thing that I, I'm trying to encourage young writers to, to do. Yeah, and like yeah, like I think you know, just reading others, other writers as well. I think just makes you a better writer as well. Like I, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of figuring out that narrative arc and how and how you sort of weave together a story because those are the stories that are just amazing because you read the lead and then you sort of see how it connects at the end. It really just is really amazing to see how that comes together. But I think your point about you know, being more crisp with your writing. Because I think a lot of time, mm -hmm. and, and I, my, myself included, I would be overly descriptive, which which is very mm -hmm. common. And sometimes mm -hmm. you got to chop the fat a bit and the crisper sentence actually ha could have more impact than mm -hmm. a really long-winded way of, of, of mm -hmm. describing something. So I think sometimes chopping the fat off a story, which I think all writers try to do, it, it makes mm -hmm. it just better in the end. Yeah, and, and I think that that's the the art when it comes to the sort of the sense of voice and sense of cadence and and, and pace, mm. um, which is which has to be acquired. I mean, it has to be something you learn through practice, through reading, through writing, through being criticized, to, through to cutting your story back and seeing how that that paragraph you thought that was brilliant, filled with great detail, really with a little bit lighter, actually had more weight. Because the reality is, the the people that are reading it, you have to think about them. You have to think about how they're flowing through. Uh, the story and if, if it's if it's way if it's weighted down with too much they're not going to get through it it's going to be too hard for them to slog through it so you need to be the guide so that when they get to the end of that story they forgot how much time they spent reading the story mm -hmm. and that's generally my goal when i set out i i want you to lose half an hour and not realize you lost half an hour and that's a very difficult thing to do but that is the goal that the goal is for you to be intrigued enough and that that you become immersed in the story and, and finding the, the, the sort of the navigating the reader through that is the art of it. And it's not an easy thing to do. So I, I think that you know, I, I never, I never uh, am critical of, of young writers or someone who's sort of starting out that, that does that because it, it, takes, it takes some time. And, I, and I'm guilty of, over, of putting too much in and, and doing it wrong a lot of the time. I mean, it's, as I said, my first drafts you'll never see for a very good reason because they need to be cut down. They need to be... Um, funneled into something that I'm, I, I think is the best version of that story. And I think a lot of the time in, in this um, sort of rapid pace that we're living in right now, where it's like get information out right away, that part of it gets lost. And mm -hmm. I think that we stop thinking about it as 
an art in that sense. Um, again, that might sound you know, overly pretentious about it, but it is how I think of it. And, and I think that we end up pushing things out that with a little more reflection, a little more time, a little more um, critical editing would be sharper. And, and I think that that's something that I would say today in the way that we're coming out of the journalism, we're missing that point, we're missing that component, um, which I think should be fundamental. Um, and, and I think it just takes a couple deep breaths and a little more time. Last question for you, Dan, and I always ask this of my sports media guests. Obviously, it's, it's such a difficult time right now in journalism, and obviously the pandemic didn't help things, and there's a lot of young people going through journalism school now and coming out to a really precarious job market. I know you work with a lot of young journalists, and I'm just curious, you talked about there's all this attention at you earlier, and how, what, what advice would you give to young journalists to, to break through that, to, to get people's attention onto their work. And in building off of that, do you think that there will be op more opportunities with sports restart um, in terms of jobs and, and getting your, your, your first crack in the sports media industry? Yeah, I do. I do think so. I mean, I, I think that you're right. This is a tumultuous time and, and we've seen so many, you know, unfortunate, um, you know, just contractions and, and, and realities in that sense. I, I do, however, believe that um, there's always going to be a, a desire for, for journalism and for storytelling, whatever capacity it is, and, and that might continue to, to evolve with new startups and new realities. But I just think that the people who love this need to stick with this and continue to pursue it. And there's, it, it can be painful. And I, I speak of, as someone who has had a lot of great opportunities. So I don't want to discount the fact that um, it can be incredibly difficult um, to be doing this on the side, to be doing this through freelance, all those things are, um, you know, realities that are very, very difficult. But I guess I would just say, continuing to do it. And on top of that, though, it's, I think, most valuable to create pieces that you're really proud of, um, these sort of touchstone pieces that you put a lot of time into, um, that, that end up being, I think that they rise above all of the noise. So I think it's trying to find the pieces you can do that separate yourself from the conversation, or, or step away from a conversation to have a different conversation entirely, but to show why you're different, that's the best way in my mind to get, um, to get noticed and to let people realize like the talent that you actually have. So, so when I go, when I look back, just, and this is just uh, talking about my own career. I mean, that's what I can reflect on, but is I, I, there's, there's a handful of stories that I know that uh, gave me, um, you know, just, more opportunity that I look back on and I go, okay, well that, that story did, did well for me. And it's something I'm very proud of because I spent a lot of time working on that story. And that for me um, was a valuable tool, but maybe it's being the best Leafs expert there is. I mean, that's also something that you can do or being the best broadcaster there is and telling the best stories that way or being a feature producer um, going through these things. But I think it's focusing on what you want to be and, and, and sort of, not, not obviously, not at the expense of learning other skills because we know that you need to have all these skills now, but just figuring out what your voice is and making it, um, you practice it and, and find your, your route to, to success that way without getting caught up in all of the noise. And I think that's the part that can be the most discouraging I would find is that you feel like you have to be everything and on all the time and always be part of these conversations and always be having something and putting this stuff out there. And I think that really um, your, your energy is more, is better suited in, in showing why um, you're, you're different than the crowd as opposed to just being part of the conversation that everybody else is having. 
Dan Robson, he's a senior writer and head of features at The Athletic Canada. Dan, thanks so much for joining me today on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Thanks, Lucas. Appreciate it.